G'day, it's me again. I'm Chantelle from MScan, the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network. And I've taken over Talking Health Tech for today while Pete enjoys his summer, hopefully in a very sun-smart way, of course. Pete has hosted many of MScan's spot-on podcasts, and I'd like to bring you an episode that covers a topic that's not spoken about enough, and that's the looking after our mental health and emotional well-being after a cancer diagnosis, and even beyond. It's our focus at MScan to provide super helpful information and resources for people affected by skin cancer or melanoma diagnosis. Now, this episode is a great listen to not only those that are diagnosed, but also their family and those that are close to them. Pete interviewed Dr. Eleanor Diath-Miller, who is a clinical neuropsychologist, and she really described many coping strategies, such as looking at the ways to settle our minds, like the box breathing method, which you can read up more about on our blog at mscan.org.au. I immediately felt so calm and relaxed after listening to Eleanor, and I highly recommend you take a listen too. If you'd like to listen to more of our podcasts or find helpful resources or learn about our amazing advocacy work, you can check us out on mscan.org.au. But here it is, a spot-on podcast on looking after your mental health and emotional well-being after a skin cancer diagnosis. Brought to you by the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network, MScan. Welcome to the Spot On Podcast, brought to you by the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network, MScan. The show gives you a baseline understanding and knowledge about skin cancer to help navigate that journey ahead through diagnosis and treatment. Looking after your mental health is just as important as looking after your physical health when diagnosed with any type of cancer. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Eleanor Diath-Miller about how you may feel about the diagnosis and ways to adjust, what are normal reactions to a diagnosis, how to manage stress and other coping strategies, and preparing the people around you. Dr. Eleanor Diath-Miller is a registered psychologist with a doctoral degree in clinical neuropsychology. She's a coach and consultant in private practice and also works as a senior clinical neuropsychologist at a public hospital in Melbourne. This podcast has been created for people affected by a diagnosis of any type of melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancer, referred to in this podcast as skin cancer. Dr. Eleanor Diath-Miller, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for joining. Firstly, tell us a bit about you and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I am a clinical neuropsychologist by training. So we're a part of the discipline of psychology, most interested in how our brain structure and our brain function influences how we think, how we feel and how we act. So there are neuropsychologists in all sorts of areas of health and part of my area of specialty is is well-being science I suppose you would describe it as in health in particular and also in organizations is where I work. Got you and today we're talking about mental health at the time of a diagnosis of skin cancer. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about why that's important to look after at that time. 
Yeah, for sure. We know that when someone receives a diagnosis of advanced skin cancer in particular, any diagnosis of skin cancer, but particularly for advanced stages, there's necessarily a really big focus on your physical health. So what's happening with the cancer in your body? So, you know, there's a lot of health assessments, there's a lot of tests, lots of appointments and meeting with everyone at that stage who's very focused on what's happening with your physical health so they can work out what the next steps will be. And I suppose that for each person who goes through a diagnosis of skin cancer, there's a lot of experiences that are not about your physical health directly. So when we look at each person who's experiencing this, there's all the emotions that come with that. There's thoughts about what's happening as well. And I guess there's also a whole history of how we've all dealt with (laughs) issues in the past Mm -hmm. in our own lives. So all of these sides of a person are just as important. And I suppose under this label of mental health, we really mean at the base of it, you know, how are you feeling about it? What are your thoughts about it? And how might you find ways to adjust? So yeah, in addition to the ways that we look after and understand your body at this time, let's support Um, and look into your mental health too. That does sound important. And and as you say, there's different things that will influence how you react or respond in that particular situation. What are the typical reactions or responses that one might have to finding out they have a form of skin cancer? Look, you'll hear us say a lot, and you'll hear it in other areas too, there's, there's many reactions to a diagnosis of skin cancer as there are individuals. So we're used to hearing that phrase, And I suppose that's because it really is true. We'll see that everyone has a very unique collection of responses. The common ones, I suppose, we can look at, though, and we see this in the research as much as we do in the people that we know who have gone through this. Often shock is a very common and significant first experience. That's a very common reaction. And for some people, that might actually be anger as well. It might show up at that time. For other people, it's sadness. And for some people too, it's even guilt, which can be a a really challenging experience when you're going through the early parts after a diagnosis. And I suppose different parts of the diagnostic process can be particularly difficult for different people. So we might hear that for some, they had really strong responses while they were waiting for a biopsy result or others it's for after having immediately after you've received a diagnosis might be the toughest time where a lot of those strong emotions show up. So I would imagine too that with all of these emotions, feelings, things happening in addition to the receiving the actual diagnosis or, or, or whatever's going on, it's not something you might automatically identify and go, oh, I'm feeling stressed right now mm. or, or if, you know, for someone else too. Like, how can you take yourself out of it a little bit and, and tell if you're actually stressed or, or, or know if your, your partner or your friend who's received a diagnosis is, is stressed? That's such a good question because we often end up on autopilot in these times. Any time of significant stress in our lives, we often will flip into autopilot. And that's because, again, you know, that might just be a typical way that an individual has reacted to something before. I suppose one of the things that really helps is, you know, we're looking, I suppose, for subtle changes or not so subtle changes in the way that we're feeling and that the people around us are feeling. And sometimes actually we don't even have enough space 
to consider that. It's, you know, we're very action-based often in this phase after a diagnosis. So there's still a lot happening practically. Mm. So I suppose we're looking for things that are slightly different. We're looking for changes in the way that we typically feel and whether it's tipping us into those sort of higher levels of stress. It's, it's worthwhile reflecting too that stress is a very normal response. Some stress is actually helpful and when there's a lot going on, it really helps us rise to a challenge. So it helps us get things done. It helps us solve a problem. Obviously, with stress that is linked with something as serious as a diagnosis of cancer, that has the potential to push us beyond all of those normal ways that we might manage and adjust. So personally, for people that can be going, oh, actually, I've noticed that I spend quite a bit of time, my heart's beating a lot faster or Mm. my thoughts are racing a little more, I'm breathing faster, I'm sweating more, I'm not sleeping that great. So it's putting things together, I suppose, in that way and also observing that in the people that you care about as well, which of those things might you be able to pick up. You mentioned some of those physical traits of being stressed, you know, the heart racing or the sweating, Mm. things that we you might think about, okay, yeah, that's what stress might look like. But what's actually happening inside the brain when this is all happening? Yeah, a lot. So (laughs) I suppose a good way to think about your brain, well, the way that that I do, is that our brain is like our inbuilt safety machine. And when we put together the spot-on booklet, you know, one of the phrases I use in that is our brains are basically don't get eaten machines. So if we go back to a time where humans in general were more at risk from predators, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago in most places, the function of the brain is to look out for threats to our safety. So once it's done that, its job is to find ways to avoid or deal with a threat and to be solving problems all the time. And that's why as a species, we're so successful. When your brain does all that, you tend to live longer. When you're facing a really big challenge, however, this high alert is kind of next level. So we have something new happening here that that has never happened before. So your brain is automatically, okay, this is novel. I don't quite know what to do here. It also recognises that there's very little that many people can control at this point. So that's really hard for a brain. They don't like that. That also then ups our stress and our alert system. Mm. And, and also it's looking out for what's certain. And at certain times after a diagnosis of skin cancer, there's a lot of uncertainty. So we know that all of those things are going to escalate your brain's responses. And what it's going to do is kick in by sending out a whole lot of messages to the rest of your body. And there's a think of it like a nerve superhighway, I suppose, from your brain down to your body and back again. It's saying, right, here's some stress hormones. We've got a big problem. This is what I need you to do. So we need heart beating faster. We need you breathing a bit faster. We want your eyes taking in more light. We want your muscles ready to run because even though we can't physically run from something as challenging as a cancer diagnosis, our brains are in the same mode as if we could run away from this thing that's, yeah. that's threatening us. So the other thing too is that all these responses move blood away from your digestive system. So we often see digestive issues, you know, things you can have really uncomfortable stomach, things don't feel right. It's harder to digest food. So as a system, it's sent out all its alerts to get everybody at their peak to try and address this threat quickly. It sounds like, you know, when a small child tries to help in the kitchen where they've got all good intentions and they're like, they're helping, but they're 
potentially making things worse. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, like, for example, your, your body is trying to help in this situation and, and say, you know, let's get you ready for this thing that you're dealing with. But yeah, that's that's not helping. Thank you. So um, that's that can be difficult. It's one thing to say, well, stress can be a good thing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it can be not helpful. Yeah, that's right. And if the stress is, you know, everyone can think of maybe it's recording a podcast and so your body gets ready to prepare and it helps you do the things that you need to do so that you can perform at your best. And then the stress, the important thing here is that that trigger is then removed. So we've dealt with that and your system settles back. I suppose what we see when the threat isn't something concrete and like overcompensating a little, we end up in territory where we don't have a clear line between stress and anxiety because they really blend together. The brain is going places that haven't yet happened for a lot of people when you've got a real threat to your health. So it can make it even more challenging to help reduce and manage some of those symptoms. You just differentiated stress and anxiety. Are they two different things? Yeah. So stress is this response to a trigger. So, you know, something's happened and we've got to respond. And we've talked a little about those symptoms and some of the very common ones that show up with stress. Anxiety, even though there are some similar symptoms, are about these very, very high levels of worries or worry that Mm. don't go away even once the trigger is gone. Whatever it is that set off the worry even if that has settled to some degree, or even if we're worrying about the possibility of bad things happening, it can take us to the level of anxiety. So then there's no clear way for the brain and the body to go, oh, I know how to solve this. I'll just do this, this, and this. So the physical symptoms, therefore, with anxiety can persist and sometimes worsen, actually, with some more irritability, persistent trouble sleeping, some more of your behaviours can be targeted rather than the physical responses. So we spent a bit of time understanding stress and what it is and what it what it's trying to do, mm. but also how it might be different to anxiety. Mm. Putting it back in the context of this conversation when looking at mental health at the time of a diagnosis of skin cancer, how, how could I manage stress in those really hard early days or weeks or months after getting a diagnosis? What are some things I can actually do? Mm. Look, one of the best ways I think people can respond in these very early days is to do what I call back to basics, focus of back to basics. So at this point, your body and your brain are looking for ways to settle. And it's it's very hard to settle because there's still a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of very real concerns. So the basics that we would look at, and this is actually right across an experience of being diagnosed with skin cancer and beyond. But keeping your eye on eating, for example, it sounds really basic, but are you eating regularly? Are you craving certain foods? We know that with very high levels of stress hormone, we can really crave sweet foods that give us good energy in the short term, but we might be burning out soon. So can you add in a broad range of foods to help support energy as well. The next part would be sleep. How is your mm. sleep going? And yeah, what is it, is it pretty much okay? So for some people, it is actually, regardless of what's happening, they, they can get a reasonable amount of sleep. Our goal really 
is to be looking at seven to nine hours of sleep a night. And sometimes that can feel quite a pressure when we talk about that. But it's like a neurochemical bath for your brain, as one researcher has put it. When we can rest, sleep, and if not sleep, then then some resting, we know that it's really positive for brain health. And the last one is movement, any sort of movement. So it doesn't matter what it is. We don't need to meet guidelines of X amount of minutes per day, X amount of times per week, any sort of movement. What is it that is enjoyable at the moment? Is it a short walk with a friend? Is it some sort of class? It doesn't matter, but any sort of movement can also be protective. So to summarise the, the things that, that are really helpful immediately is, is your eating, your sleeping and your moving. And the other big one is looking at your social connections. So they're incredibly predictive of how we manage in all situations of significant challenge, but particularly in these early days after a diagnosis of skin cancer. So who are my people? Often our social connections are really diverse. So who can I go to when I I just need to vent about this? Who can I go to who I know will distract me? They don't want to talk about it, but... We can do something that's a bit fun and I don't have to think or talk about cancer. Who can I be sad with? You know, who can I really let things out when I'm talking to? So really coming back to those different qualities of social connection and slowing things down when you can can be one of the hardest things, but that can really be helpful too. Those are some great examples and and perhaps might resonate with with somebody. Do you find as well that with all these different options and and things you can do that one might get stressed because they're not sleeping (laughs) or that they're they're trying to do all these things? Like now there's too many things to do and now I'm getting stressed about not doing these things and it's kind of spiralling into even more so. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. And look, one of the things I suppose is keeping an eye on you know, what it is you need to get through. So if, if you're getting enough sleep, for example, then it might not be ideal, but you can do what you need to do. I suppose the next step, particularly with something like sleep, is to say, I might actually need to talk to someone about this because it's gone on for quite a while. So if you've got more than a couple of weeks of significant difficulty sleeping, then it's okay not to know necessarily how to manage it yourself, but to say, for example, for your GP or even specialist that you're seeing, this is a real challenge right now because we know that one of the foundations for managing a a lot of the next while will be being able to get enough rest and enough sleep. So draw people in. Don't feel like you need to solve an issue by yourself. That's good advice. Something we were talking about offline before we started recording this was this this concept of mental time traveling. Did you want to unpack that one a little bit with me? Yeah, mental time traveling. It's just one of my favorite ways for describing some of these capacities of the human brain that we've touched on already that are very clever. It's a wonderful strategy to have to be able to, for example, remember the past in great detail. It's also a wonderful human skill to be able to imagine what might happen in the future because that helps us plan. And Mm. humans are great planners and we all feel better with some sort of plan. It helps us solve problems because we come up with all sorts of different scenarios in our minds. And usually we will find a solution from one of those over time. The challenge when it comes to issues that can't be solved or in the period of time, for example, after a a serious skin cancer diagnosis, we're prone to doing both of those thinking patterns. 
So there can be times where you, we would look back to maybe a similar experience or someone else that we've known, and that could be really confronting, but it's not actually in the room with us right now in the present moment. So we travel back there and our brains actually activate in a very similar way as if we were living it again. And it's the same with mm. the future. So if we imagine worst case scenario, and humans are very good at that, and that used to be because it, it helped us. If we thought about everything that could go wrong and we planned around it, <laughs> we tended to be healthier humans and survive longer. Again, though, in this situation, any situation where we don't have control, where there's a lot of, you know, we can't predict what's going to happen and it's new, the brain tends to go in loops of what might happen and our body's responding as if it is. So often we're not really aware that we do both of those things. So mm. what can be really helpful with mental time travelling is going, ah, oh, even if you catch yourself going, oh, okay, I was thinking back to a time when yeah. or... I'm really, really concerned and my questions are big. You know, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? How am I going to cope? How are people around me going to cope? And we can find ourselves in future loops as well. And just noticing those can make a big difference to going, okay, they're real concerns. I don't have to solve them right now, though. This will happen in steps and I'll have support to solve those issues. You mentioned before about some ways to manage stress involve some of those, they sound like basic human things like eating and sleeping there's breathing techniques as well, right? There's things that we can do with breath to help slow things down and address. Absolutely. And the reason that breathing exercises are so helpful is that while we've got our like stress superhighway in the body, mm. we've also got a calming, settling part of that exact pathway. And it's the side that helps with our sleep and digestion and when humans are actually able to relax. And we need that part of our system because if we stay on high alert too long, of course, it's really unhelpful for physical and mental health. It can, it can lead to more challenges. So the breath is the, the fastest and most effective way, I guess, to hack into this calming nerve pathway. And it's especially effective when we breathe in a way that uses the diaphragm muscle as well as we can, as much as we can. And that's because these nerves supply the diaphragm muscle and if we slow and deepen the breath, people might have heard of belly breathing or abdominal breathing. The reason that's so effective is that when we can use breathing that recruits the diaphragm and that slows us down, we actually see changes in our heart rate, in our breathing rate. So it's like it's feeding back up to the brain. Actually, right now, we are safe no, that's really good. I've heard of different techniques that people have for, for breathing. Can you explain something there? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple that are really simple and often we have an idea that you need to be able to sit in a quiet corner where it's nice and soothing and there's no worry or stress around us. That's nice if you can, but that's often not the way that life works and it's often not the time when you really need a breathing exercise handy or you might not have the space to do that. So a really effective breathing technique is called the square breathing or box breathing. And it's where we either focus on a square shape or close your eyes and imagine a square shape in your mind. And what you're doing is counting around that square with changes in your breath. So for example, I would imagine that I'm following the left-hand side of the square 
I'm counting to four. Across the top of the square, I'm pausing and holding my breath. After a count of four, I then imagine traveling down the other side of that square for a count of four. So that's my breathing out. And then again, holding the breath for a count of four at the end. So you can imagine a square or follow a square and count around it in that way. That's, that's handy. The other one is as simple as breathing in for a count of four and trying a, a slightly slower count than you want to, holding your breath for a count of four and then breathing out for a count of six. So the key here is that we're slowing down the rate that we're breathing out and prolonging the rate that we breathe out because that's another effective way to tap into this settling system. I mean, there's two good techniques that people can use straight away. And you mentioned earlier, though, that it's okay to seek professional help when you need it. But how do you know when you actually need to seek professional help and and how can it help? That's a good question. And often people are really unsure, particularly if, for example, you've not sought any specific support for mental health before. One of the key signs that it can be really helpful to link in with someone specifically for emotional and psychological support is if in the midst of the stresses and and challenges in daily life, you begin to feel like you're not able to manage the way that you managed before. And you might find that worries, emotions, thoughts, all of those might be interfering with you doing the basic things you need to do in daily life. Mm. So we would expect some interruption for all of these after a diagnosis of skin cancer. Once they're becoming more of an influence so that it's really hard for you to do what you need to do, and sometimes actually it might be people around you that say, hey, have you thought about talking to someone about this? This this is really difficult. And I think it's also at this point really difficult important to normalise extra support when it comes to mental health. We're very used to an analogy many people will have heard. You know, if you, if you broke your leg, you would go and get an expert to help you with that. You wouldn't be expected to battle on managing it yourself. And it's exactly the same with challenges, whether they're difficult thoughts, difficult emotions. This might be stirring up previous experiences as well. And it, it's exactly the same as to check in with a person who has expertise in this area, who will be able to guide you through and and also normalise all of the things that have been happening. And so what do you do? Do you go to your GP and they write you a referral letter to a mental health specialist? How how does that whole kind of flow work? Sure. GPs are a great way to start. They're often the best way to start, particularly if you have a good relationship with your GP. We could even go back a step there and if you don't necessarily, and a lot of people don't, it's a really good time to ask for recommendations. So friends and family will really rave about GPs when they find good ones. So see if you can link into that, see if that GP is taking on new patients and set yourself up with someone that you feel truly comfortable with. That's really important. When you make an appointment deciding, okay, I do have some physical things that I'd like to talk about, but I'd also like to raise the fact that I've been feeling incredibly stressed and it's just not settling. And I also actually feel a bit sad now, a bit teary unexpectedly, or I feel anxious in situations where there doesn't seem to be a reason for it, as some common experiences. 
make a longer appointment with the GP and Mm -hmm. they will be able to talk you through that. And if it's going to be helpful, you can set up a mental health care plan. And this is a formal document that you do together with your GP. There'll be a number of supports that they'll talk about in there. The GP will run some of them. So sometimes there's medication that will help. Other times there's other particular suggestions that the GP can make and manage. And then they can make a referral to a mental health specialist. Most often that's a psychologist and they'll help set that up for you so that the relevant paperwork goes to the psychologist and then you would go and call the psychologist clinic to book in for your first session. So it sounds like there are lots of different types of professionals and people out there to help. And of course, you touched on, you know, understanding your network too and knowing who you've got to speak to about what. I dare say, though, that not all the engagements that someone has with all best intentions would, would be positive. Sometimes people can can be, you know, try and be helpful, but they end up being unhelpful. And then that creates this whole kind of spiral, right, of the stress and anxiety, and or, or it just perpetuates, I would imagine. But what, what can I do when people offer unhelpful suggestions yeah. in my situation? Yeah, this is a really difficult issue, and it's very, very common. And what we know, as you've mentioned, is that having others make suggestions or give us advice that we didn't ask for increases stress and anxiety often, particularly in this very early period after a diagnosis. So there's a couple of things to keep in mind when you're deciding how to respond. And this will differ. It depends on who this is in your network. So it might be someone you know really well. It might be someone you've met once or it might be someone you've never met and everybody in between. So it depends a little on on who's making suggestions, when and what sort of context they give it. Was it a message? Was it in a conversation? The way you respond will also depend a bit on how you're feeling that day, (laughs) how they're feeling that day. So it's, it's a very complex situation when this happens. So if this has happened to people listening today and they felt really uncomfortable, I just want to normalise, absolutely, it doesn't feel good. So I suppose the first thing to recognise is that often people are doing this because they feel helpful. Yeah. They, they feel like they're doing something if they can offer you and some advice or a suggestion. So we get that and we understand that. And the second thing is that it, we just can't control what other people do and say. So I do have some responses in mind. You might still find, though, that even after you've mentioned to someone how you'd like to go moving forward or that you just don't want any particular suggestions, it might not change someone else's behaviour. So that can be pretty tough, but it, it can happen. But I suppose you can either direct people away from the topic or you can tackle it head on. And either or both is fine. So... One of the things that I suggest people do, and it it sounds really daggy, but it really helps, is to practice what you might Mm. say the next time a particular person makes a suggestion. Now, that's because it often, sometimes this happens when we least expect it and we're really thrown off guard. But if you've run through it a couple of times and you've just got a really short sentence, you're like, right, this is what I'm going to say when someone offers some advice that, that I really don't want or I didn't need at the time. So if you'd like to divert, one of the the strategies can be to say, look, thanks for thinking of me. That's an interesting idea. And then move the question away, move to a question that's unrelated. So tell me about your XYZ. 
Yeah, right. So you're acknowledging that people are concerned for you and you're saying, oh, okay, that's interesting. But it's very clear that you're not going to follow that and you don't want to know anymore. Interesting is a good word. It's a good neutral word. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still polite though, yeah. That's like right. It. That's right. And look, yeah. you might have messages like this show up in an email or social media. Sometimes uh, I read somewhere and I thought this was a really great way to do it is to say, oh, thanks for thinking of me. And, then, and that's it. Full stop. Yeah. That there's no more. You're not asking. Because you're acknowledging that good intention that they might have had in the first place too, yeah. That's right. And look, if you want to tackle it more directly, which is is some people's style, again, you can begin with the thanks for your concern or or thanks for thinking of me. At the moment, I prefer not to talk about my diagnosis or my treatment or I'd rather talk about something other than my health right now and moving along. So they're they're just some ways that can be useful if you really need a sentence, if you need something to move the focus away because it's it can add to a sense of overwhelm when when those sorts of things happen. Great idea practicing it too. And and there's like you say, it might it might feel a bit funny, but but these things come up when when you least expect it. So being prepared with something might might help. So that's really helpful. Thank you for that. And and this can be really useful in a number of areas, but Often people can be quite relieved when they know what you want or what you don't want. We forget sometimes that people don't know what to do in the time after a new diagnosis of cancer. Mm. So that can be a really good thing to keep in mind is if I tell people and if I reduce uncertainty, actually that's good for them and it's good for me. I'm thinking about earlier when we spoke about seeking professional help and that might be a bit easier if someone was based in a capital city or in the metro areas, but Australia is a big country, a lot of people living in regional areas. What options would someone have in seeking help for mental health if they are in a rural or remote area? Do they need to always travel into a city hospital to get help? No, they don't. It's a, Look, it's a good question and it's, it's also an area. COVID had not a lot of benefits, but it did have some. And One of them was that telehealth and remote access for regional and rural people around Australia to all kinds of health information and treatment has really improved. So I would often recommend that the first step is still, if someone has a GP, that can be a first good point in terms of any local resources that that they know about. But otherwise, there's a lot easier now than it used to be to link in with professionals Mm. in other areas. So Again, you might need your GP to provide referrals, but you might be able to seek out the sort of support you're looking for. Do you offer telehealth? And if they do, that can be a really effective way to get access no matter where you are. Looking after your mental health is often overlooked. Finding a new normal after a cancer diagnosis can be difficult. That's why MScan has developed a range of resources to help you with your melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancer diagnosis. Check it out at mscan.org.au. MScan acknowledges the traditional owners and ongoing custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Bijigal, a clan group of the coastal Darug people. The content discussed in these episodes is for information purposes please make sure you speak with a medical professional for advice relating to your own specific situation.